All right, hi, this is Roland Fisher, lead pastor of Second City Church, and we hope that you're well. Welcome to our online service. We hope you leave today encouraged, full of faith, and ready to take the kingdom of God wherever you may go. But we just wanted you to know that we're so glad that you've chosen to join us today. And once again, welcome. Now today what we're doing is we're continuing our series, which has been entitled Forgiveness. And today's message is actually going to be subtitled Self-Awareness and the Cross self-awareness and the cross and boy in preparation for this message that was hitting home for me over and over again because of all the things that I may have one of the things that I often lack is a healthy dose of self-awareness my family and friends will tell you that but it's also why they love me and so let's talk about self-awareness and the cross today our focus statement is going to be this that we will finally have the freedom to love Jesus and others when we realize how much forgiveness is offered at the cross. We will finally have the freedom to love Jesus and others when we realize how much freedom is offered at the cross. And so to do so today, we're going to break the message down into three parts. We're going to talk first about comparisons that we make with ourselves and other people. Secondly, we're going to talk about the need for self-awareness and the realities of the cross of Christ. And then thirdly, we're going to talk about the fact that God has actually forgiven us much so that we can love much in return. And so before we do anything else, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word to us today, and we thank you that you've given it to us so that we can clearly see not only who you are, but how you want us to live before you and towards one another. God, would you help us by your word today to know your heart? And not only know your heart, but know your ways. That God, our ways, our thoughts, and our interactions with one another might be pleasing in your sight. That when we appear before you, before the judgment seat of Christ, that God, you might say to us, well done, good and faithful servants. Not only for the ways that you've served me, but for the ways that you've interacted with others. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, so let's start by talking about comparisons. And we're going to do that by opening to the verse in the Bible where Jesus was actually speaking and, um, to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were a group of religious people in Jesus' time. They were religious leaders of the common folk during the days of Jesus. And they were like the people's champions, really getting into the nitty-gritty and trying to encourage the people of the world, how to live according to God's ways in practical manners. And so the Pharisees, uh, though they had an ardent zeal for God, they often were those who found themselves at odds with Jesus, the Son of God himself, because, before, because even though they had a great zeal for God, they often missed the heart of God when they were trying to put into practice that which God said. And so let's open today into Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36, and see what Jesus had to say in regards to the Pharisees. He said this, One of the Pharisees asked him, meaning Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he, meaning Jesus, was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head 
and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man, meaning Jesus, were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, which was the name of the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. And he answered, uh, Say it, teacher. So Jesus said, A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now this is, quite frankly, not only powerful, but this is actually one of my favorite encounters that Jesus has with a sinful woman in the Scripture. It's powerful because, as we talked about several weeks ago, when Jesus was making the comparison to Simon the Pharisee about the two people who owed debts who had been can that had been canceled, he talked about different amounts of denarii. And when he talked about the denarii, he said one owed 500 denarii. And we said, again, a denarii was like 500 days wages. I'm sorry, a denarii was like a day's wage. So the first debtor owed 500 days wages, over a year and a half worth of wages. And the other only owed 50, maybe a little over a, a month and a half worth of wages. So you have a year and a half worth of work and working debt that one owes the master, and then another one, maybe a month and a half. He ended up canceling the debts of both, but the one who obviously had the greater debt ended up loving him more because the weight and the amount of uh, indebtedness towards the master who had canceled the debt was so great in the heart of the first servant that the expression of love in response was rightly received and rightly produced out of the first servant's heart. And Jesus makes this comparison to uh, this sinful woman and the Pharisee, how they both treated Jesus when Jesus was in Simon the Pharisee's home. And really it brings up our first point about comparisons, that comparisons can be good for godly motivation in our lives, or ultimately destructive separation. 
that when people make comparisons, and we all do it, whether knowingly or unknowingly, whether intentionally or unintentionally, we're all people who often make comparisons in our lives towards one another. And what we're doing is we're setting up ourselves against other people who we either respect or disrespect, who we value their opinions or don't want anything to do with. We're always making comparisons in the world in which we live in our hearts. And as we said, that comparisons can provide godly motivation when they propel you to a greater love for Jesus and for others. When Jesus was uh, explaining this parable to Simon, and he was basically making a comparison between his love for Jesus or his expressed love for Jesus, his expressed devotion to Jesus, and this sinful woman's devotion to Jesus, he was doing it not out of a destructive motivation, but out of a godly one to produce greater love for Jesus and others. However, comparisons in our world can also be destructive when they produce judgments towards others, giving us a false sense of support, superiority, value, or worth. Jesus was making this comparison to, uh, between the Pharisee and the sinful woman because in the Pharisee's mind, he made comparisons, made a judgment on this woman, and said, you know what? I would never do the things that she did. I would never be caught in the situations that she was. And therefore, in his heart of hearts, he was better of greater worth and superior to her present state. Now, Jesus was providing godly motivation for the Pharisee by comparing it to the gratitude expressed by the sinful woman. And he allowed no mention of the woman's sin being greater than that of the Pharisees. We don't know what the woman's sin was. We know that she more than likely um, could have been someone who was uh, caught in some sort of adultery or some sort of uh, promiscuous or illicit behavior, but we don't know it for certain here. All we know is that she had a reputation, and a reputation that not only followed her, but preceded her whenever she entered a room. But Christ, whenever he's talking about her, he was not allowing those comparisons to mark her. He did not compare the sin of the Pharisee to the sin of uh, the sinful woman. But what Jesus did is he ultimately was reminding the Pharisee that Christ alone is our standard for righteousness that Jesus alone would be our standard for perfection, that in all the world there is no one who has ever lived perfectly except Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah who's come to be the Savior for the world. And what Jesus was doing by making comparisons between these two is ultimately saying that the only person to whom we should ever compare ourselves is Jesus Christ. When we look at the world around us, it does not mean that we shouldn't call things right or wrong. But when we're making comparisons, there is no way that we should uh, submit or um, give in to the temptation to compare ourselves to anyone but Jesus the Christ, who will ultimately be the judge of all humanity. Because he alone has a perfect record before God the Father, Jesus alone will be the ultimate judge before all of humanity. And in this, we are both humbled and liberated, knowing that Jesus Christ alone can be and has come to be our ultimate Savior. Now, this allows us to relate with those who were formerly natural enemies and 
covenant with those who have been likewise redeemed, living now under the lordship of Jesus Christ. What that means is that even in the church where there have been divisions over the past strains of this year and in multiple periods of time before, we need to realize that all of us are closer to one another than we think. It's why a man named Don Carson, when he was talking about the comparisons that Jesus wants to free us of to be able to relate with one another with a greater sense of love and also grace, he said this. He said, the reason that there are so many exhortations in the New Testament for Christians to love other Christians is because the church itself is not made up of natural friends. It is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. Christians come together not because they form a natural collocation, but because they have all been saved by Jesus Christ and owe Him a common allegiance. In this light, we are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. That is the only reason why John 13 verses 34 and 35 makes sense when Jesus says, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. Christian love will stand out and bear witness to Jesus because it is a display, for Jesus' sake, of mutual love among social incompatibles. Now that's powerful. And I don't know about you, but this is what makes me believe and know for certain that this is the hour for the church of Jesus Christ to shine where the world and media has tried to make the church, the capital C church, a caricature in this hour, when we're living biblically and we're living according to the commands, the spirit of God, and also the ways of God, what we see is that the love that we have, not just for those who are like us, but those who are unlike us, not just for those who agree with us, but those who disagree with us. When we, even in the church, have love for what would be natural incompatibles, that is a sign and a wonder by which the world will know that we are in fact Christ's disciples. And that's the powerful thing. This is the power of forgiveness. This is the power of the grace and the love of God expressed by the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, several weeks ago, we talked about Pentecost and the fact that it was Pentecost Sunday where the Holy Spirit of God was poured out on God's church to empower them to not only supernaturally change in their hearts and their minds, but to be witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ after his death on the cross to take on the sins of humanity. When he was resurrected from the dead and poured out the Holy Spirit, it was a power that freed people to live in this supernatural love that didn't come naturally between social incompatibles in their day. And it wasn't just in Christ's day, it is necessary in ours as well. But we've got to stop making comparisons according to a worldly and a carnal uh, 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 um, 
judgment and instead start to have a godly comparison provoking one another to greater love for Jesus and love for our fellow man. And so again, it does not matter another's income, education, or achievement level. If you think yourself morally superior, then you've become another man's judge, and the poisoning of your relationship ultimately follows. What we need to do is beware the trap of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were religious, but their comparisons drove people away from God rather than towards Him. So that what um so the question is what can come against such a supernatural testimony and display to which Don Carson refers? It's ultimately a lack of self-awareness. And we all need a dose of healthy self-awareness, realizing that the cross of Christ, the cross of Jesus Christ, is the great leveling agent of humanity. And the self-awareness that Jesus was bringing to the Pharisees was the re to result in a greater love for God and others on whom they would naturally place judgment. And the question for us today is, on whom would we naturally place judgment? In the woman's case above, Jesus was clearly placing a premium on humility, self-awareness, and an indebted sense of devotion to God. That's what Jesus esteemed rather than what the Pharisees esteemed. And we all need to have a greater sense of awareness of our own and not just other people's sin. We need to have a greater sense of awareness of our own sin and not just other people's sin. Now, why do I say that? Rollin, wouldn't that just bring greater condemnation on myself? Wouldn't I just be beating myself up all the time? Well, to the contrary, what, what I think we need to realize is that when we are truly walking in the revelation of the forgiveness of Jesus that we talked about last week, an awareness of our own sin does not lead, in fact, to further condemnation, but a greater sense of liberty and a desire for obedience because of God's grace towards us. When I realize how much I've been sinned, just like that sinful woman in the story that Jesus, um, the encounter that Jesus had with her, with the alabaster jar, she had an awareness, an acute awareness of her own sin. And what that didn't lead to was greater condemnation for her. It, in fact, drew her nearer to Jesus because she knew Jesus as full of grace and a Savior, someone who had come by the work that he would do for her on the cross to save her not reject her, to save her, not condemn her. And when we have a realization of our own forgiveness before God because of the cross of Christ, it will do the same for us, draw us nearer rather than propel us away from God. So that even when we make mistakes, we in essence end up falling forward into the arms of God rather than running away from him. And as with the sinful woman, the kindness shown to us is what provokes us to love Jesus and others more out of great gratitude towards God. And a greater awareness of our sin keeps the cross of Jesus Christ at the center of our thoughts and the joy of our salvation in our hearts. That's what makes us more than just religious, prudish people. We're always walking around like we have a burr in our saddle. 
We have a joy in our salvation because the cross of Christ is front and center, liberating us day after day as we come to once again be reminded and renewed in the forgiveness of the blood of Christ that comes and washes us and cleanses us from our sins. And what we see is that no one is too high and no one is too low to lack the need for the cross of Jesus Christ. But without an awareness of our common need for forgiveness, divisions abound in relationships, not only in the church, but also in society at large. And this is why a man named Miroslav Volf actually talked about the need to not only receive but give forgiveness through the gospel of Christ in the church and to express that grace to the world at large. He said, forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans, even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. But no one can be in the presence of the God of the crucified Messiah for long without overcoming this double exclusion, without transposing the enemy from the sphere of monstrous inhumanity into the sphere of shared humanity, and herself from the sphere of proud innocence into the sphere of common sinfulness. When one knows that the torturer will not eternally triumph over the victim, one is free to rediscover that person's humanity and imitate God's love for him. And when one knows that God's love is greater than all sin, one is free to see oneself and so rediscover one's own sinfulness. That's powerful. And think of how that truth can liberate us from the vindictiveness and the, 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 the real anger and the angst that we live in day by day as soon as we open our social media feeds and as soon as we find ourselves in the echo chambers that the algorithms have created for us or when we're watching the news not being cross-pollinated by different cross-references of people's perspectives and opinions and not, most importantly, being grounded in the truth of God's Word day by day, reading it, feeding on it, consuming it, and being transformed by it so that we can, in fact, have the mind and heart of Christ when we go out into the world. What Miroslav Volf was basically telling us is don't forget yourself, because the opposite of humility is not just pride, but it's self-righteousness. And remembering others' sin and not my own is pride. Self-righteousness is sin which sets your internal estimation of yourself in superiority to those who surround you. And it leads to a vitriolic condemnation of others, cutting off our ability to appeal to them on the basis of the gospel of Christ. Let me tell you that many of us today who feel like we are fighting the Lord's battles forget that the Lord himself fought and won his ultimate battle by humbling himself and going to the cross to die for those who would hate him, persecute him, crucify him, and ultimately rejoice at his death. 
but at the cross, he was on the cross reminding the Father, saying, Father, forgive them, for they don't even know what they're doing. And in such a way, paved a way for not only forgiveness, but reconciliation with God, the Holy Father, to take place and with himself through repentance from those sins and faith in Jesus. What we never want to do is, in our culture, exalt singular issues or agendas over the gospel of Christ. The reality is, is that we live in a fallen world and people will sin. Does Should sin anger us? Should evil anger us? Absolutely. But we've got to also, when we are angry or when we're angered by sin, also remember that the gospel of Christ that we should be preaching and sharing with people turns people from that sin. But if we're so angry and lack forgiveness towards people that we don't want anything to do with them, then they remain in that sin and the cycle continues. The hope for the nations, however, is to change hearts and not just policies. Our job as Christians is to remain in Christ and in a posture to love sinners. Just as Jesus shows us with that sinful woman build bridges, and bring them home to God through repentance and faith in Jesus. The Pharisees' lack of self-awareness prevented them from doing so with that sinful woman. So again, we need to beware of the trap of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were religious, but their lack of self-awareness built divisions rather than bridges between themselves and others. And if we're honest with ourselves, can we actually answer the question, have we done the same thing? The truth is, is that God wants us to have a self-awareness so that we might know our own sin, not just other sin, our own sin, so that we might know that we've been forgiven much to actually love much. And we will love Jesus and others fervently when we realize that God has treated us undeservedly. We will love Jesus and others fervently when we realize that God himself has treated each and every one of us undeservedly. And Jesus brought this point home in Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 9, when he was once again speaking to a Pharisee. And he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Jesus said two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And again, the tax collector was at that time were seen as the chief of sinners. They were puppets and traitors to the Jewish people being used by the Roman empires to exploit their own people who were um, supposed to be followers of God during that time. So he is saying these Pharisees who were to be the uber-religious and this tax collector who was to be the uber-sinner. The Pharisee, verse 11, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, meaning the Pharisee. 
For everyone, Jesus said, who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And so when I see that we are to fight the battles of the Lord, yes, we should, but we realize that in any contest of ideas, both parties need to be taken to not only the judgment seat, which is what we're quick to do, right? But also to the cross of Christ for an opportunity to find mercy through repentance. And when I'm emptied of my own self-righteousness, I can be filled with the love needed to lead others to such a faith in Jesus. And ultimately, that's our call. This love provides me the ability to speak the truth with Christ and others' interest in mind, knowing that God will look out for and exalt me as I do. You do not have to be fear-driven people of God. You can live according to God's heart and His Word, and God will back up your interests because He always has His kingdom interests and His purposes which include his love for you in mind. I know that if I humble myself before God and in my treatment towards others, God himself will work on behalf of righteousness in my situation. But if I am godless, if I'm godless or self-righteous in my treatment towards others, God has clearly said that he will humble me and frustrate my cause. Proverbs 24, verses 17 and 18 drives this home when it says, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and be displeased and turn away his anger from him. And so on all sides of the aisle, when people are crying out for freedom, when people are crying out for justice, when people are crying out for what they see as righteousness, when they see that their enemy, their natural enemy is getting it, many times, even in the church, people start rejoicing. And God's saying, do not do that. You'll miss my heart. And otherwise, I'll turn my wrath away from them and be displeased. God is saying, keep the cross. Keep the sin of which you've been forgiven front and center, and then therefore you'll be able to love me and love others in the same way. Again, we need to beware the trap of the Pharisees. The above Pharisee was religious, but his self-righteousness brought the displeasure of God rather than God's approval. And ultimately, at the end of the day, we need to realize that there is a difference between confidence and arrogance. We should have great strength produced from our confidence in God. However, we want to forever make our boast what we're confident in, not in any man, not in any uh, allegiance to any uh, human thing, but our confidence is in Christ alone. And the closer, the closer you get to God, His purity and His holiness, the greater awareness you have of your own shortcomings and sins. I know that's true of me, and I know that it's biblically true as a historical precedent. Self-righteousness, though, is a telltale indicator of one's true proximity to God. The further away I am from God in His heart and relating with Him, it's interesting, the more self-righteous I feel and the more vindictive I feel towards others. Others. The closer I get towards God, though, the more humbled I am. 
and the more desperate I am for his grace to cover me in my shortcomings. And then therefore, out of thankfulness, I want to offer my love for him and also to one another's. We have the ability to walk in the freedom of forgiveness, even when we don't see eye to eye with others. People of God, you need to realize that. There's great variety and there's great um, <clears throat> There is great diversity within even God's church. There needs to be a common stance on the orthodox truths of the faith. Things like Christ's divinity, the, 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 the reality that there's no salvation in any other name except Jesus Christ because of his death, burial, and resurrection, his salvific work on the cross. That God expects holiness and obedience to all of his commands, not just some of them. But God says also, when God is clearly spoken, he demands obedience. But where there's biblical silence, there's room for discussion based on the character, ways, and heart of God so that we might be led of the Holy Spirit and ultimately together find the mind of Christ. Living a life of forgiveness does not mean that you agree about everything, but that you learn to live graciously and lovingly towards one another. The only agreement that's imperative is agreeing again with God and his word. And in this word, we are commanded to be reconciled with God through Jesus Christ and also reconciled with one another. Why? Because as Martin Luther King Jr. wrote, he who is devoid of the power to forgive is devoid of the power of love. We can never say, I will forgive you, but I won't have anything further to do with you. Forgiveness means reconciliation and coming together again. So ultimately, let's pursue love of both Christ and one another today, being humbled by the cross of Christ and strengthened by God's great forgiveness expressed towards us. Let's not be swept up into the culture that lacks that forgiveness and looks to separate rather than come together. But instead, let's let the cross of Christ bring us all back to God and back to one another in Him, in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. So let me end by praying for you. First, I want to pray for anyone who says, you know what? I have not been able to forgive my fellow man because I've never known the forgiveness of God himself. And so the truth of the matter is, is that I don't know. I don't know what it means to offer forgiveness to others because I've never been pardoned of my own sin. I know that I stand as an enemy before God today. But today, what I, what I, what I realize is I realize that I've been an offender. I don't want death and hell. And I, I want to come to Jesus as the great Savior. I want to come to Jesus today as the great forgiver of my sin. And I want to be like that sinful, sinful woman with the alabaster jar and find myself at his feet, receiving the grace that he has for me. If that's you today, let me start by praying for you as God himself is calling you home into the forgiveness that he first wants to offer you before you ever understand how to offer it to other people. And as he commands you to come to him, just know this, that it starts with you forgiving others, releasing others so that you yourself can be forgiven as well. And as you do that, would you pray this prayer with me? Almighty God, I thank you for your love for me in Jesus. 
And I thank you that even when I didn't know you, you came after me to express to me your love, your mercy, and your grace. And I, like the sinful woman, know my own faults. I know my shortcomings. I know how I've ruined my life, other people's lives. I know how I've uh, sinned against you and others. And I ultimately know that I deserve death and hell. I'm acutely aware of that. But God, I say today that I don't want it. And I ask you to forgive me my sins. Like the sinful woman, I come to Jesus knowing that he lived the sinful life. Uh, the, um, he lived this sinless life for me that I should have lived. And on the cross died this sacrificial death for me that I should have died. And that because of his innocence, three days later you raised him from the dead so I could have forgiveness of sins and new life in you. God, would you forgive me and make me a new creation today? I say today, I turn from my sin and proclaim Jesus as my Lord. Thank you for your love for me. Amen. Now the good news is, is that if you prayed that prayer, God said that he's made you a new creation. So would you go with me to our website, secondcitychurch.com slash new life. There you can find not only resources, but next steps of how to walk out this new life in God. And for the rest of us, let me just pray a prayer of blessing that we would know our own sin, but we'd also know the great salvation that Jesus provided for us in the cross. And so, Father, I thank you that we would have a new sense of self-awareness today, that each and every one of us would stop making destructive comparisons, but instead make godly comparisons to provoke one another to love and good deeds in Christ. God, we pray that the cross would be front and center in all of our ways, in all of our days. And God, we're asking you that as we know our own sin, we would also know your great and gracious, glorious, overwhelming forgiveness. That day by day, we would not only be washed by your love, um, um, a blood, but liberated in love to return that love to you and to others, whether sinners, natural enemies, or otherwise, in Jesus' mighty name. But God, let it first start in the church and let forgiveness flow between those who've been offended with one another. We lay it all down at the cross today and thank you for the Spirit of the Lord because where the Spirit of the Lord is, even over this virtual space, there is liberty. And so we ask you to liberate us today by the power of your great love in Jesus' name. Amen. And so as we've received the forgiveness and the grace of God towards us, let's go back to, into worship now, honoring the one who's loved us so. Hi, everybody, and welcome to our communion moment. We hope you've enjoyed the service today and that the Holy Spirit really ministered to your heart, broke chains, increased your faith in the risen Jesus. And now we're going to take communion. So if you haven't got your uh, juice yet or your bread yet, please go and grab those real quick and come back here so we can all partake together. So the first thing we want to do is we want to remember what communion is and what the Lord Jesus said that communion is. And we're going to do that through the Apostle Paul and what he wrote for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 23, as he was reminded them. So Paul said, First I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. So here we are here to gather now 2,000 years later, remembering the gift of the sacrifice of the body that was broken for you and for me, for our punishment, and then the blood of Jesus for an eternal covenant for those who will trust and believe and repent of their sins and receive it that they could be made right with God and abide in His kingdom forever. So hopefully you've had a chance to now go grab the bread. So go ahead and let's pick it up and let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for giving freely your body to be broken so that we could be healed. And by faith, we receive it now and we say thank you for the healing that's in your broken body. So if you believe, you can partake. And in the same way, we want to remember His blood that was poured out for us so that our sins could truly and fully be washed away now and forevermore. So if you've repented of your sin and you're trusting in Jesus, now let's renew that covenant right now and you can partake of the juice. We're going to continue to talk about these matters in our community groups this week. And so if you've not yet found one, please do visit our website where you can find both in-person and virtual options. We'll be praying for you this week, so please do let us know how we can be standing with you. And also think about how you can share this link so that others might be encouraged by the grace of God towards them. Invite those same people to service with you next week so that they can also meet the living God found in Jesus Christ. And until then, have a wonderful week in the Lord. God bless you, we love you, and we'll see you soon.